At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Our theme for Christmas worship this year is the light of the world. And uh, last week we began our study by looking at Jesus' statement, I am the light of the world, from John chapter 8. Today we're going to be in part two of that series as we look at Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. That's where we're going to be this morning in a prophecy that was given uh, 700 plus years before Jesus' birth that talks of his coming and what he would do as the light of the world. And so we're going to see that again uh, today as we look at Isaiah chapter 9. But before we look at those verses together, I want us to think for a moment about the life that we live. We live a life, we live in an era that is encouraging us to be somewhat autonomous, to be alone, to get what we need ourselves. You know, there once was a day, there once was an age where when you needed milk, there was a milkman who brought it to your house. Now, there's a grocery store and a refrigerated section where you go yourself to get it. There once was a time when, when you needed money from the bank, you went and talked to a banker. Imagine that. Today, we have ATM machines. There once was a time when you called someplace and there was a human being who answered the phone. But now, mostly it's machines and automated menus. There once was a time when you wanted to book an a airline ticket someplace or, or a trip of some sort. You would go and talk to a travel agent who would take your particular situation in mind to craft a plan. Now there's just a website. Now all of those things are, are somewhat helpful, aren't they? I mean, they're, they're convenient at one level. We don't have to operate and make those kinds of decisions and do those kinds of things just during business hours. We're able to, to do them at all different hours of the day. And so in many ways, it's helpful until it isn't. And most all of us have been in that situation where we need some help. We go to the store and there is no skim milk in the refrigerator. And you look around for anyone who might be able to help you know if there is more that is not seen or if you're just missing it. You go to the bank, and, and you don't want just 20s, but you want some 10s and some 5s. How would you get those? The machine doesn't know. You need some help. There's times when your travel arrangements need some special help to somebody who knows better than you to tell you if a 30-minute layover in Atlanta is enough for you traveling with your 2-year-old, Right? See, when we think of the world we live now, it is pushing us towards autonomy, but we instinctively know that there are moments that we need help. And when we need help, we, we don't need someone to tell us what our objective is. And we really don't want an FAQ page. When we get to the point of really needing help, we want a person to help us, don't we? We want someone to step in who knows better than us, who can assist us and help us get where we need to go or what we need done. Now, I share that with you today, not to just reflect on the nature of modern society, but I tell you that because at a, at a deep level, uh, this 
resonates with our souls. Because when we think of the big cosmic issues of our lives, we think of our sin, we, we think of the shame associated with it, we, we, we think of forgiveness or, or connection with God, when we think of having hope come back to our lives and re- replacing the sense of despair, when we think of all of those kinds of things, we don't need someone to just tell us to do better or to get better. And we need something more than just an FAQ page of a list of do's and don'ts. We need someone to answer the phone. We need someone to come to our aid. We need someone to save our soul. Friends, praise God, such a one exists. Jesus Christ, our Lord. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7, verses Uh, 24 in the first part of 25 after reflecting on just the despair of his life the good he wants to do he doesn't do but he does the very thing he doesn't want to do and the frustration of his struggle with sin answers this wretched man that i am who will deliver me not not what not what program who will deliver me from this body of death and then he answers thanks be to god Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen? Friends, when we find ourselves in need, God gives us not just a book, not just an objective, but he gives us himself to both forgive us and cleanse us, but also to point us and equip us and empower us in the way of righteousness. And this morning, we're going to look a little more at how God does that and what how he has done that in Christ as we look at this prophecy from Isaiah chapter 9. So if you've got a Bible, turn to Isaiah 9. I want to read these seven verses for us, and, and then after reading them, I'm going to make a couple of observations before we celebrate the Lord's table together this morning. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 says this, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish, In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. 
Now, friends, in these seven verses today, I, I want to make two observations that help us understand how God personally delivers the help that we need. So what do we see? The, the first thing that we need to be reminded of is this, that, that there is a, an invitation to go from darkness to light. This ought to sound familiar to you because this is very similar to what we saw last week when Jesus spoke from the Temple Mount area in John 8, saying that he was the light of the world. But there is a, a transition that is talked about in Isaiah 9 about how we might move from darkness to light. Now, where do we see that in these verses? How do we make sense of that? Well, the, the first thing that we, we see is we see the presence of darkness. We see it talked about in verse 1, where, where it's talked about gloom and anguish and contempt. There were some difficult things that were happening. And we think about the, the gloom and the anguish and the contempt that the nation of Israel was experiencing in 700 B.C. Uh, this comes even clearer when we look back at verse 22 of, of chapter, chapter 8. This, this verse obviously was right before chapter 9 in verse 1 as Isaiah wrote it and God delivered it through Isaiah. And in 8.22 it says this, They will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. So inside of these verses we're reminded of a condition that was upon the earth that was described as, as darkness and gloom and anguish and contempt. It's a lot of difficulty. Now, all of these things were, were, were happening in a particular region of Israel as Isaiah gives his prophecy. This was in, in the region of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. These were two regions of the nation of Israel uh, where different tribes of Israel had, had settled. When we think of this on a, on a map, we, we see that the land of Naphtali and the land of Zebulun were these two areas in the northern part of Israel. Here is the Sea of Galilee and around it, the land of Naphtali and the land of Zebulun. Now, what was the darkness that they were experiencing? What was the, the gloom that they were enduring? What was the contempt that they were experiencing? Well, this region of Israel was the first to experience domination by the Assyrian army. So you might remember that, that long ago, God established a covenant with the people of Israel, and it went something like this. If you obey me and keep my covenant, then I will keep your borders secure, and I will provide enough food for you to eat. But if you disobey me, this is the, the, the old covenant of the Old Testament, if you disobey me, then I will discipline you through invading armies and famine and thirst. This was what God had, had promised in his old covenant. And the nation of Israel in the north had disobeyed God. And because of their disobedience, God had allowed them to be disciplined by the invasion of the Assyrian army. And the first area of Israel that was invaded was the area of Naphtali and Zebulun. And the reason why is quite simple. The Assyrians were up here to the north. 
And so their first place where they came as they began invading the land of Israel were the areas that were controlled by Zebulun and Naphtali. So Isaiah is talking about a time, a season, where they were under discipline from the Lord, where they were experiencing a feeling of contempt and darkness. It was as if the Assyrian army had had stood between them and the sun so that they were in this dark shadow. This was the experience of these areas. And he talks about it happening in this, this very region where they will have this darkness, this deep darkness. But praise God, it didn't stay that way. Isaiah writes this prophecy, not, not just to say, hey, guess what? Let me describe your reality. It is really dark. No, instead, he, he writes his prophecy to tell them that though they are in darkness, they will experience light. He's, he's writing to offer them hope that God would not keep them in the shadow of the Assyrians forever. And, and, he, and he says this quite clearly in verse 1. He did talk about gloom, but he said there will be a time where there will be no more gloom. And he talks about anguish, but he talks about it in the past tense. There, there was anguish. He talks about in a latter time, in a future time, that God will make glorious the way of the sea. What is the way of the sea? The way of the sea was a highway that ran right through the middle of Zebulun and Naphtali. If we were to use this in, in our parlance today, we might say, how, how do we describe central Oklahoma? We would say, the Lord will make glorious I-35 and I-40. At the junction of those two great ward, uh, roads, the Lord will make his glory known. Light will shine again. In a very similar way, he's saying that right in the middle of Zebulun and Naphtali, that there will be light that will come. There will be light that will shine it will go in the land beyond the Jordan into Galilee of the nations. We'll come back to that in a bit. But we see here that there is hope that is coming for the people of God. And this hope comes in light. Though they walked in darkness, a great light will shine. Though they are living in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. These are, are, are written in the past tense because it is so certain, even though these events were yet future, Isaiah was so certain that they were going to happen that he writes of them in the past tense. It says, though we're in darkness now, light is coming. This is the promise of God. And what will happen in light of this? Well, when those who dwell in darkness suddenly experience a great light, they begin to celebrate. First of all, the nation begins to multiply, not shrink, but multiply in number, numerical number. And not only that, but their joy, which was very small perhaps in their time of Assyrian invasion, would one day increase and multiply. And they would celebrate as people do at the time of the harvest. Now, um, are there any farmers here? Anybody grew up on a farm? Brian Hayes, I see you back there. We had at least, yeah, we had a few farmers in here. So when, when you think about your, your experience on a farm, when the harvest comes in, it's a joyous time. Imagine only getting paid once a year. Just the, the joy and the celebration that came at the time of the harvest, the provision that comes in. 
Uh, we might put it in different context. They are going to celebrate when they go from dark to light like someone who just won the lottery. They're going to celebrate from dark to light like someone who just closed a deal and got a big bonus. They're going to celebrate in that way. And not only that, but they're going to celebrate and be glad like when people divide the spoil. Think about the celebration of a team that has just won a championship. I know that's a sore subject for the state of Oklahoma today. Um, But imagine, just remember what it's like when you win and the the, the ticker tape comes down from the, the stadium ceiling and it's in your team's colors and you're hugging people you've never met and you're celebrating. Why are you celebrating? You're you're dividing the spoils of victory. You're celebrating that joy. What we see here is that even for those who currently were living in darkness and in shadow and in doubt and in discouragement and in contempt, God was going to do something that would lead them to have a joy that would increase, that would lead them to an era of celebration. Now, I say all of this to describe what was what was promised to the nation of Israel, but I, I think that we can find some emotional resonance in our souls about this as well, can we not? Because we also live in a time of darkness, and that darkness looks different for different people, but there's a shadow over our lives. What causes the shadow? Perhaps it's the death of a loved one. This is the first year that you are celebrating Christmas without your spouse or your child or your parent or your good friend, and there is just a shadow over this moment. Or, or perhaps it's, it's an addiction that you have tried to kick, but it just won't go away, and that addiction, that temptation is like a shadow over this moment. Perhaps it's the shame of of past decisions that stand large and have cast a shadow upon your moment today. Perhaps it's a broken relationship that looms large and casts a shadow and some darkness over this moment. Friends, what if you heard that it was possible to move from darkness to light? What if you knew that God could do something in you that would cause you to be able to have joy and celebrate again. Friends, that's what this passage is all about. God is offering us hope that moves us from darkness to light. Well, how does he do it? I mean, if if that's a tease, that's a setup, there can be celebration where there was contempt. There, there can be joy where there was sorrow. There can be light where there was darkness. How? Well, let's keep reading and see what it says. Because we need to see the light that we might be drawn to it. You know, uh, insects are drawn to the light. When we see this phrase, we think of insects on our back porch in the summertime, right? But we are no different. When, when the light shines in the darkness... There's an attraction to it. When we understand the hope and the beauty of our God, we are drawn to him even and especially even in the midst of the darkness of our world. And so what do we learn about Christ from these sections? Well, this movement from darkness to life, first of all, must be understood as something that God does. 
Verse 7 makes this very clear. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. How do we move from darkness to light? It is something that God is going to do. God is going to, to make such a move possible. The zeal of the Lord of hosts, the, 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 the effort, the enthusiasm of God is moving us from darkness to light. He doesn't just begin the section that way, but he also begins it. In chapter 9, verse 1, it says that he has made glorious the way of the sea. This is not something that we have earned. It's not something that we have, have pulled a lever so that it happens, but God himself of his own volition and in his grace is going to do something that can move us from darkness to light. Now, what do we learn about this light that, that God has done? What do we learn about it? Well, he mentions several things, and I wanted to look at all of these so that we might see in, in greater clarity what God has done so that we might be drawn to him. So let's look at his light a little bit. The first thing that God is going to do that will lead to this celebration, that will replace our darkness with light, is that he has brought about a deliverance. He's brought about a deliverance. Verse 4 makes this clear. For the yoke of his burden... And the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Well, what is it being spoken of here? Specifically, he is saying that the, the oppression of the Assyrians would be broken. Their rod, the Assyrians' rod, their staff would be, would be broken, would be kept from being an instrument of oppression against the people of Israel. That's what is being spoken of here. And, and this would, would happen because God would do it. God would bring about this deliverance for his people just as he did in the day of Midian. What, what happened in the day of Midian? Well, some of you might remember back in the Old Testament, there was a, a, a time where the Midianites were oppressing the people of Israel in a very similar way as the Assyrians were in Isaiah's day. And God raised up a judge by the name of Gideon who led a band of a very few number of people of Israel to defeat the Midianite army in such a way that they could not say it was our doing, but in such a way that they had to say God is the one who had brought this deliverance. And so in a similar way, there is a, a statement here that God was going to bring about a deliverance from the force that was oppressing his people. Now, this is something specific to the nation of Israel, but again, it reminds me of what God has done for all of us in Christ, that all of us are under the oppression of sin. Sin seeks to be our master, and sin is a terrible master. It promises the world, and it delivers death. That is what sin does. Sin promises excitement and delivers shame. That's what sin does. We are under the rod of sin until, by God's grace, Christ can break sin's necessary rule in our lives. And so there is a hope of being delivered from sin's mastery in our lives. There's a deliverance that he does. But there's a second thing that is mentioned in verse 5. There's a peace that he delivers, 
a peace that he delivers. Again, verse 5 says, For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. What's he talking about there? Well, he's in a very poetic way talking about the end of wars. He's saying that all of the instruments of war, all of the, the mechanisms of battle, will one day be put in a giant bonfire of God's grace. There will be peace between men. But even more impressive is that because of what God is going to do, there will be peace between man and God. That there is a way that God will provide that will allow us to have peace with God so that he will not be waging war against us so that we will not be the recipients of his wrath, that even though we are sinful, we might be forgiven and we might be reconciled to him. See, there is a, a hope of, of peace, peace on the earth and peace with God. This is what he has done. But again, how will he do that? How will he deliver these things to us? Well, I love what Isaiah 9, 6 says, one of the most famous verses in all of Isaiah, says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Now, who is this referring to? Who is this referring to? We can say it louder than that. Who is it referring to? Jesus, right? This is a, a verse that is referring and pointing to Jesus. So the, the peace that we desire, the deliverance that we need, the light that, that we long for is delivered by him, not by an FAQ page and not by just stating an objective, but by God himself arriving in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, when we, we see this, this, this great idea, and we, we, we've, we've all heard that, we, we, we lean in, we say it, but how do we know this is talking about Jesus? I mean, how do we know? Well, the passage gives us a massive clue. In this passage, in chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, in the verses immediately preceding this, it makes this statement. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, and those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness on them light has shown. Let me ask you, friends, is that verse familiar to you? And if it is, why is it familiar? It's familiar to you because it is quoted prominently in Matthew's gospel, chapter 4, verses 13 through 15. It's quoted there to, to make sure that we understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of this passage. Again, let's go back to our map. Zebulun and Naphtali. In the Old Testament era, that was the, the, the state names, if you will, of this section of the nation of Israel, just to, um, just to the west of the Sea of Galilee. But what was it called in the time of Christ? Somebody remember? It was called the land of Galilee. Same area. The road, the way of the sea, went right through the heart of Zebulun and Naphtali. The way of the sea went right through the heart of Galilee. And what happened in Galilee? That was where Jesus based his entire earthly ministry. Somewhere between 70 and 
of Jesus' life was spent in that region that we, we know about, that is documented for us in Scripture, was spent in the region of Galilee. So when, when this passage tells us that that land that was in deep darkness, that was known for contempt, that was in the shadow of the Assyrians, on them the light has come, what was being said? One day that area would not just be the host of an invading enemy army, but one day that area would be the host of God himself who came as the light of the world to illuminate the darkness, to deliver us from sin, and to bring peace between man and God. Now, when we see in chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, this, this beautiful description of Jesus, we see a description of his identity, his identity as our heroic helper, our Messiah, our Savior, our friend. What, what do we learn about him? Well, first thing it says is that he was born a child. He was a son that was given for us. Speaking here about the incarnation of Jesus, God in the flesh, so that we might know God. Second thing we learn about him is that the government shall be upon, be upon his shoulders. What does it mean to say the government will be upon his shoulders? It means that he will take the responsibility of leading the earth in righteousness and justice. Friends, what a joy. We live in an era where we look to this political candidate or that to be our hope, to be the one who will deliver God's righteousness. And by all means, we should vote our conscience and we should study the issues. But friends, the, the true deliverance, the true peace that we long for will not be voted in an election. It will come when Jesus returns to this earth and takes the government upon his shoulders and leads his kingdom initiating upon the earth. It goes on and says that his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. What a, what a great statement that is, isn't it? His name will be Wonderful Counselor. He'll be the one who knows the way to go. He'll be the one who listens and who guides. He's a Wonderful Counselor. And not only that, he's a mighty God. There's nothing that he cannot do. Just as God himself is omnipotent, so Jesus as God is omnipotent. There is nothing that he cannot do. There's no wisdom he does not know. There is no thing that he cannot do. He then calls him everlasting father. Now, this is confusing a bit for us, I think, when we see it, because we think of Jesus as the son, not the father. So what's happening here by referring to Jesus as the everlasting father? Well, this word father also can be the originator. It's as if this is saying Jesus is the originator of eternity. Do you want something eternal? Do you want something that won't expire? Do you want something that won't break? You know, we recently had our refrigerator just stop working. And we found out just how finite the things in our life really are as we had to throw away nearly everything inside. So we live in a world where things break, where very few things or nothing in this world is eternal in a sense. But when we long for something that will not break, when we long for something that someone who is eternal, we see the everlasting father is the, the originator of eternity. We can trust in him and we can trust in him forever. He'll never fail. And he is the prince of peace. He is the one who is able to deliver that peace we spoke of earlier, both between men and with God. 
passage continues and talks about how Jesus will do this as he establishes a kingdom, a kingdom that was promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7 to David and his descendant. Jesus will be the one who fulfills that, who will have a reign that knows no end. It will continue to increase. It will continue to, to go on forever. There will be no end to it. When Jesus comes again and establishes his kingdom upon the earth, it will not cease evermore. I love what Ray Ortland says about all of this as he helps us kind of make this and connect it to our souls. He says, look at Jesus. As the wonderful counselor, he has the best ideas and strategies. Let's follow him. As the mighty God, he defeats his enemies easily. Let's hide behind him. As the everlasting father, he loves endlessly. Let's enjoy him. As the prince of peace, he reconciles us while we are still his enemies. Let's welcome his dominion. Friends, we have seen the the light of, of Christ, the light of the world, described in a beautiful way in Isaiah chapter 9. We go over it this morning at the beginning of the Christmas season so that our hearts might be warmed again so that we might be drawn to his light, that that we might know him and follow him. You know, oftentimes at Christmas, we make lists of things that we want. It's what we do in our culture, right? We make lists of things that we want. Well, I want you to do that this week. I want you to make a list of the things that you want, but I want you to go beyond just the things that you want, like a new sweater or a you know, December to remember or whatever it might be. I want you to go beyond those things. And I want you to think about what you really want. Peace, hope, life, forgiveness, restoration. And I want you just to spend some time meditating this week upon how Christ has provided those things. Either in this life, things that he has provided, but also in terms of eternity, the things that he will provide. Friends, we can be drawn to the light of Christ, to trust him and to follow him this time of year. 